0: G'day everyone, and welcome to 2020 Plus 4. I apologise for the lengthy delay. It's been an, shall we say, interesting couple of months. But that's all fish and chip paper now, at least for a little while. And so we're back into it. So what's 2024 going to bring for the Australian Military History Podcast? Well, I've finally done it. After a couple of years of spruiking the possibilities of some kind of expansion, I've now kicked off the Patreon page. As you may remember from last year's final episode, I've had a wild idea I would like to kick off with this year, but that will require some additional funding to what I myself can chip in. So if you wish to find out what that idea is, you'll have to head over to Patreon. If you do, you'll get all the new and previous episodes ad-free, a monthly instalment of a VC recipient story, and another broad idea I've had over the break. That broad idea relates to a series of publications I received a few years ago, These are magazines where diggers, mostly from World War II or Korea, submitted stories relating their time in service. I've never really known what to do with these, as they're just sent in in random order, so I can never just go to a particular story to add a bit of first-hand account to an episode. But they're brilliant stories, and it's a crime for them to just be sitting in a drawer in my house, doing nothing, and not getting told. So I'm going to whack one of them on the Patreon each month as well. So how's that for a bit of value? Of course, all that will take a bit more of my time. So to accommodate that, I'll be shifting from a three-week release schedule for the podcast to a four-week schedule. Of course, unfortunately, I also have to earn a living in the real world. So we'll see how it goes. If I end up being able to do the Patreon stuff, push the little mystery project and hold down full-time employment while squeezing in the three-weekly podcast episode, then I'll switch back to that schedule. And don't forget to check out the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com, Facebook and Instagram. And finally, before we kick off 2024, see Hagger on iTunes. Thanks for the review, mate. I appreciate it. So, let's kick this pig. Whenever I'm out and about and mention the Boer War, people usually respond with something along the lines of, Oh, that's the Breaker-Morant War. And yes, yes it is. The story of Breaker Morant has been told, -told, retold, rewritten, and occasionally reinterpreted to jump on the war crimes bandwagon. Not mentioning any names recently. So I've deliberately not focused an episode on that subject. It's all been said before, and there's nothing I can add. But there's quite a bit more to that war than just the one incident. And there's more to the story of one of the main characters involved in the Morant trial. But his full story isn't one you hear much about. He is, of course, Major James Thomas, the Defence Counsel for the Accused Australian Troops. How did he come to be in South Africa at a time where his legal skills were required? What had he been doing up to this point? What happened to him afterwards? All good questions, which I hope to answer by the time we finish this episode. My usual sources have been a bit unproductive when it comes to Thomas's antecedents. The Australian Dictionary of Biography doesn't even give him a mention, which I find very strange. Even the Australian War Memorial site doesn't have much. No doubt the information is out there somewhere, but time constraints have brought me up short. What I can tell you, though, is that James Francis Thomas came kicking and screaming into the world on the 25th of August, 1861, in Sydney. He was the eldest of three children and was educated at the King's School in Parramatta. Apparently, he was a bit of a poet, having quite a few poems published in Australian Poets 1788-1888 which is kind of spooky because he would go on to defend one of Australia's more well-known poets years later, Brayker Morant. After school, he studied law at Sydney University, graduating in 1887 and heading northwest to the tiny little town of Tenderfield, where he set up a law practice. He soon became one of the prominent citizens of the town and was part of a group which lobbied to have the New South Wales Premier, Henry Parks, come to Tenderfield and give a speech. Now anyone who knows anything about Australian history will know of Henry Park's address in Tenderfield on the 24th of October 1889. It's commonly pinpointed as the beginning of the Australian Federation movement. He suggested that a convention of leaders from the various colonies should gather to devise a constitution for a federated Australia and to form a federal parliament. It would take another decade or so for Federation to become a reality, but the fact that Thomas was among the group who invited Parkes to speak is a pretty good indication that Thomas, although still proudly British, saw himself as an Australian first. It was that strange dichotomy which existed in Australia right up to the end of World War II. They saw themselves as both British and Australian without any suggestion that the two were mutually exclusive. It may seem strange to modern day Australians, but bring up the Republican debate today and you'll see that sentiment is still strong in many citizens. Anyway, back to the late 1800s. Thomas stated at the time the park's speech motivated him to purchase the Tenterfield Star newspaper. I thought to myself at this point that I would jump on the National Library Trove site to regale you with some of the stories printed in the Star. But would you believe it? Not a single page has been digitised. Anyone thinking there may be a cover-up going on here? Break out the tinfoil hats. Anyway, Thomas owned the Star for 16 years. According to the Tenterfield and District Visitors Association... The concept of federation was received with quite a bit of hostility at the beginning, but The Star was able to bring quite a few people around to the idea, which obviously became a successful movement. The Star was also the first country newspaper to advocate for the formation of the country party. It would appear that Thomas, like most people who lived beyond the suburbs, felt that the city-based pollies had way too much influence on the national debate. Not much has changed, it would seem. Among his other varied interests around the town, Thomas joined the Tenderfield Mounted Infantry Regiment as a First Lieutenant in February of 1894, and in November that year he assumed command. It must have been pretty good, because in 1895 the regiment won the Hutton Shield, an award which was presented to the best Australian light horse contingent. The competing regiments were assessed on drill, dress, cavalry attack, marksmanship, horsemanship, fire discipline and command. As you can see, it was quite a detailed assessment criteria and the fact that the Tenterfield Rifles won the awards shows Thomas' abilities as a commander. In October 1899, with the outbreak of the Second South African War, henceforth referred to as the Boer War, Thomas was among the first to volunteer for overseas service. He was commissioned as a captain and requested to raise a contingent for South Africa, post-haste. And so he did. It only took him three weeks to raise a squadron of the New South Wales Citizens Bushmen, and to have them ready to ship overseas. Prior to his departure from Tannefield, Mayor William Reed hosted a concert in Thomas's honour. The Mayor obviously realised that a gift wasn't going to be much use, and so in lieu, he sent the new captain on his way with a bag of gold sovereigns and these moving words. So that whenever your eyes fall on it, you may think of the many friends you are about to leave in this district. I can conscientiously say no man in our midst will be more missed than you will be. Tenderfield must think itself highly honoured in providing for the Empire, a gentleman who has risen to the position of captain in one of the finest armies going to South Africa. End quote. So, you know, the type of meaningless waffle that those in high office tend to spew at such moments. I do like the finest army bit. I wonder what he was basing that on. Three weeks earlier, that army didn't exist. Anyway... In January 1900, the Imperial Government accepted the offer of a corps of Australians. This was to be known as the Australian Bushmen, and would have regiments provided by each of the colonies and be commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Airy, DSO. The regiment, including Captain Thomas, arrived in South Africa, but before they could disembark at Cape Town, they were ordered north to Beira, which is in modern-day Mozambique. But back then, it was Portuguese East Africa and to the north of the Transvaal region. What were they doing up there, you may well ask? Well, they were up there because in the early stages of the war, the Boers had laid siege to the railway town of Mafeking. Under the command of the future creator of the Boy Scout movement, Colonel Robert Baden Powell, the garrison of Mafeking had been under siege for 183 days by the time the relief column had landed at Beira, I won't go too much into the relief of Mafeking because although the Australian Bushmen were there, they didn't play much of a role in the actual relief of the town. But the journey from Beera to Mafeking was a bit of an epic introduction to life in South Africa, so I will cover that part. Now there's not exactly a library full of information as to what Thomas got up to during the advance into the Transvaal. But as I give this brief account of the journey, just be satisfied that in there somewhere, Thomas was commanding his troops. The Bushmen consisted of the following regiments. The first regiment was from New South Wales and included Captain Thomas under Colonel Airy. 2nd Regiment were Victorians and West Australians, under Major Viles. The 3rd Regiment were Queenslanders, under Major Tunbridge. Then there were the 4th and 5th New Zealanders. By the time they had advanced any great distance into the Transvaal, they'd been pretty well mixed up. The climate and the nature of the land itself was completely unsuited to horses, and many died along the way. Keep in mind that the whole idea of mounted infantry was that they would ride their horses to the site of battle and arrive fresh and ready to hook in. Now their horses were dying, and so many of the troops had to cover the distance on foot, totally negating the benefits of mounted infantry. Their first main destination was Bulawayo, 300 miles away. To spare the horses, and hopefully keep enough of them alive to be of use further down the track, all the men walked. If the conditions were tough on horses, you can only imagine how tough it was for men carrying weapons and all the accoutrements a soldier needed. Twenty days later, they shuffled into Bulawayo, no doubt exhausted, and more than just a little foot sore. Fortunately, from Bulawayo to Mafeking, there was a rail line, so they got to put their feet up and enjoy the ride. And by that, I mean they were loaded onto stock carriages with very little in the way of ventilation and sanitary facilities. But, as they say in the army, a second-rate ride is better than a first-rate walk, and it saved quite a few of the regiment's horses, So all things considered, it was an improvement. As an officer, though, it's quite likely that Thomas, at least, had a carriage made for humans and was a bit more comfortable in his troops. After the relief of mafeking, the column continued to push further into the Transvaal through Zirust, Rustenburg, and eventually to the north of Pretoria, capital of the Boer Republic. The first concrete mention I can find of Thomas in South Africa is that on the 8th of June, he arrived with A squadron at the staging and supply depot of Eland's River. By this stage, the war was beginning to go pretty poorly for the Boers. Despite their early successes, the gathering might of Britain was proving too much, and with Empire troops knocking on the door of the capital, many Boer combatants began to take up the English offer of amnesty for any who surrendered their weapons. It seemed that the war was just about over. Or was it? Of course not. Jan Smuts, a Boer commander wrote later of the feeling among the Dutchmen. As an old boar at Rustenburg said to some trusted friends when he came out of the commandant's office, having signed the oath of neutrality, My hand has signed the accursed thing, but God knows my heart is pure, and that I intend on tearing it up as soon as the first commando appears. End quote. For those who don't know, the word commando is actually a war word for what we would now call a guerrilla force. So basically... Many had agreed to lay down their arms, but fully intended to pick them up again, given half a chance. Captain Thomas actually provides us with an account of the relationship between Conqueror and Conquered as the Bushmen joined other British units of the Rustenburg garrison. He wrote, If cattle, ponies, forage, etc. are required for the British troops, the owners are paid full value for them. And this almost mistaken generosity on the part of the victors is being taken advantage of in various ways and our men, who have been on short rations for a long time, have to pay extortionate prices for extra rations. If they commandeered, otherwise loot anything, they are heavily fined or punished in various ways. For picking two or three cobs of corn, one trooper of the British South African police was fined three pounds, and one of my own men, pulling a few oranges off a tree at a farmhouse, was ordered to get off his horse and walk 12 miles on foot, the complainant being a cantankerous old the latter. On one of her children being shaken hands by one of the officers, snatched it away and carefully wiped its hands for fear of contagion from the hated ruin neck. One of our troopers, who asked for bread on purchase, was greeted by a Dutch girl with a broomstick. End quote. So, as you can tell, there was not a lot of love lost here. Having decided that Rustenburg was pretty much secure, a substantial number of the garrison were ordered elsewhere, leaving about 200 men in Rustenburg, including the Bushman and Captain Thomas. Those remaining were ordered to the Rustenburg Jail, where they set up stone defences, each under the command of a junior officer. The accommodations were pretty meagre, but in the long run, that didn't really matter. Of course, on 3rd of July, the situation heated up a bit. On that day, a Boer patrol was spotted to the north of Rustenburg. General Baden-Powell, recently promoted, ordered Colonel Haw to withdraw the small Rustenburg garrison to Zerust. Thomas wrote, It was a disconcerting order. Every man is to be mounted, wagons in span, and all made ready to retire from Rustenburg within an hour. All spare horses to be turned loose and driven, all bore rifles and ammunition to be thrown down the jail well, all stores that can be loaded on the wagons, leaving as little behind as possible. End quote. From here, there's quite a bit of back and forth with regiments heading through Elands River to Zierust and then ordered back to Rustenburg and then back again. But cutting a long and confusing story short, by 6th of July, Colonel Hall was suffering heavily from malaria, and A Squadron's horses were just about done, and so the decision was made for them to remain at Elands River, while the remainder of the force continued on towards Rustenburg. Over the following days, Stores convoys continued to come into the post at Elands River, as well as other Australian troops from Queensland, Victoria and Western Australia. On 14th of July, a local rotor bicycle into the post and reported being shot at by snipers. He requested an escort to bring in two wagon loads of supplies. A squadron was given the order to provide the escort. Thomas commanded the force of two lieutenants, two sergeants and about 35 men. A small force headed towards the wagons which they came across at about 2pm. The drivers reported that an armed force of Boers was located a bit further on. The decision was made to rest for a while with the posts out to protect from a surprise attack. The sentry then approached and told Thomas that some wagons up ahead were surrounded by a number of mounted men. The order was given to mount up. They came across the wagons, but were unable to clearly tell if the men surrounding them were Boars or some other British troops. When the patrol approached, the mounted men took off for the nearest copy, a small hill, and began to fire on the Australians. At least now, there was no doubt as to who they were. Faced with the choice to either turn and gallop away, or dismount and return fire, Thomas opted for the latter. Thomas's horse was hit twice, with the first bullet breaking its leg, leaving him without a horse. Unperturbed, he ordered his men to dismount and to take what cover they could. He called out, Don't waste your ammunition, boys. We haven't got much, and get all cover you can. The only cover available were small ant hills, which the men crouched behind. The horses had to take their chances. A sharp engagement followed, with the Boers pouring a hail of fire at the Australians and A squadron returning as best they could from their precarious positions. Trooper Walter Pateman said of Captain Thomas during the engagement, Bullets were thick around the men, especially Captain Thomas, whose horse had his leg broken in the first volley. He was a marked man, but nevertheless, with the exception of having his horse shot, came through without a scratch, despite the bullets which flew on all sides of him. End quote. After about 15 minutes, the ball fire ceased and they withdrew. Thomas ordered his men not to follow which some thought was a bit overcautious. Others agreed, thinking it was likely they were being drawn into a trap. Thomas wrote of his first proper fight, Our casualties were a sergeant wounded in the shoulder. Not seriously, a neat hole being drilled through bone and all. One horse was killed and two others very slightly hit. It is marvellous how he escaped, and one can now well believe the statement that a tonne of lead is fired for every man killed. End quote. The patrol returned to the post with the wagons in tow. The garrison at Eelands River continued to grow, and by the 27th of July 1900 it had grown to around 500 men. I've already done an episode on the siege, so if you want to know a bit more about it, I'd advise you to have a listen to that one if you haven't already. For now, though, I'll stick mainly to Captain Thomas' involvement for the duration. Thomas gives a pretty good description of the post when writing about the arrival of D Squadron. He says, The garrison has swelled to about 500 all ranks, nearly all mounted men for garrison duty in a spot where there was no protection for horses, nor even men. End quote. It's an interesting point. A garrison force consisting mainly of men who were trained as highly mobile mounted troops. It would be a test of all the leaders, including Thomas, adjusting to static siege warfare. On first of August, Thomas led a small party of fifty men to a position known as mobile's Start. They expected an attack the next morning, so Thomas set his men to strengthening the position by mounting bags of maize on a low stone wall. No attack came the next morning, but a messenger from the Boers stated they had a wounded Australian in their camp in the hills. Trooper Lovett had been wounded in a skirmish the previous day, and Thomas sent a small party to retrieve the wounded man. When Lovett was brought in, Thomas treated his wounds and sent a messenger back to Eilers River to fetch a doctor and an ambulance. Having successfully evacuated Lovett, The Bushmen returned to Eelands River, and when the Boers finally opened their attack on the 4th of August, Thomas and the New South Wales Bushmen were holding a position either side of the garrison's main artillery force, that being one seven-pounder gun. Now in siege warfare, taking out the enemy's ability to fire back is a pretty high priority, which meant that being either side of a prime target put Thomas and his troops in possibly the most important sector of the defence during the opening barrages. Thomas gives a good account of the opening barrage, which I will read to you shortly. But before we do, it is probably wise to give a bit of a description of the ground they were on. The predominant feature of the ground is that it is made up mostly of hard shale rock. This meant that digging deep defensive trenches or pits was out of the question. At best, the men could dig down a foot or two and they had to pile up rocks to build up the breastworks. These are what Thomas refers to as sconces in the following passage. Also, the shale had an uncomfortable tendency to shatter into razor-sharp fragments when hit with even small-scale artillery shells, such as pom-poms, filling the air with flying bits and pieces that are detrimental to a bloke's health should he be hit by one of the shards. Here's what Thomas had to say. I subdivided the sconces amongst our lieutenants and senior NCOs, Major Sergeant Mitchell taking charge of one. Directly the attack began, we rushed to our places, and none too soon for the bombardment was terrible. During the morning, a fine, strong young fellow named Waddell was hit by the screw of a pom-pom next to me and in two or three minutes he was dead. Almost at the same time, poor Jim Duff, another bushman, was killed instantaneously by a pom-pom in the sconce on my right. Next, a shell struck the sconce Sergeant Major Mitchell was in on my left and he and several other men ran out and three of them were wounded. But Mitchell must have been wounded as he was running out as he had a bullet through his leg. I said to Mitchell, Don't bring all those men into this sconce. There are too many in it already, and there is plenty of room in the one you have left. I did not know then that the men were hurt. He said, I can't go. I am hit. He was then lying down under a wagon at the back of the sconce. I said, Are you badly hit? He said, I think my leg is broken. I said, No, it can't be broken, or you would not have got so far. Two of us then went and helped him to the sconce I was in. I looked at his leg and found it was only a flesh wound and bound up with a handkerchief advised him to remain in the sconce as the hospital was in an exposed position and to get to it meant risking getting hit. He said he would rather stop, so he fixed him up and afterwards the doctor came and said he could remain. Poor Waddell lay dead close by, and not far off, poor Duff. The hospital mentioned by Thomas was indeed exposed. Later that night, Mitchell was moved to the hospital. While in the hospital the following day, Mitchell received a much more serious wound when an artillery burst sent shrapnel flying into his leg below the knee. We'll hear a bit more about his fate in a moment. In an example of Thomas's ability to always find the bright side of a situation, when mentioning the construction of his unit's sconces, he stated, The chief advantage was that we had plenty to eat, for our sconces were strengthened with cases of stores, and the shells very conveniently, Burst upon tins of biscuits, beef, jam, and bags of flour and sugar, and a Mauser bullet once drilled a hole through a rum cask, so you see there was a silver lining to our dark cloud. End quote. For the first couple of days, Thomas and the rest of the garrison concentrated on strengthening their precarious position. The dead had to be left until darkness fell before burial parties could be organised, usually with bullets still whistling around, and Thomas was preoccupied with the situation concerning the garrison's artillery. They only had 100 rounds for their seven-pound gun, which wouldn't do much damage to the well-entrenched Boer forces in the hills. On the third day, he was called to the hospital by Captain Surgeon Dooker. Sergeant Major Mitchell's shiny new leg wound had become seriously infected and gangrene had set in. The leg had to be amputated. Thomas sat with Mitchell briefly before and after the operation, which gives him a bit of an idea into how he viewed his responsibility to his men. With all the competing priorities he had to deal with during those first days, he still made sure to take time to visit and provide comfort to his wounded men. Although he doesn't mention doing the same for any of his other troops, so maybe Mitchell was considered a good friend more than a subordinate soldier. As you can imagine though, in those conditions, with limited medical supplies and the hospital itself consisting of little more than boxes and tarpaulins, Mitchell's prospects were not good. Despite showing positive signs immediately after the operation, By the 11th of August, his condition plummeted, and Doc Ducker informed Thomas that his friend would not survive. On the evening of the 12th, Mitchell died, and along with three other men, Thomas dug his grave that night. He later wrote, We placed grass at the bottom and wrapped him in his blanket. It was a sad duty for us, the saddest I have had in South Africa. Sergeant Major Mitchell was always a keen soldier. He was for 15 years attached to the Tenerfield Corps and was, I think, for about 10 years, its sergeant major. Now he filled a soldier's grave and I think there is none better. Far better than to die, perhaps, of some lingering disease. Thomas's account of his time at Elam's River goes a bit quiet after this time. Maybe he was too busy with fighting the siege or maybe laying his friend into the ground curbed the urge to write too much down. We next hear from him at the end of the siege when, on the 16th of August, with the Boer forces having retired the day before, Lord Kitchener led the relief column into the post. Kitchener and his senior officers were full of praise for the defenders. Thomas said they showered praises upon us for our defense and treated us like heroes. We thought the praises were unduly great, but I will say that the Australian Bushmen were prepared to resist to the last, even to the bayonet point. End quote. So obviously, along with such high praise, these gallant defenders would be called at all the comforts and assistance owed to such heroes. If you believe that, you obviously know nothing of the ways of the army. It was decided that the camp which the garrison had struggled to hold on to for two weeks would be razed, with all the stores either loaded onto wagons or burned. On the 20th of August, Captain Thomas joined the rest of the Bushmen as they left Elands River, heading for Mafeking. But because most of their horses had been killed during the siege, these mounted troops had to make the journey in the old-fashioned way, on foot. Thomas let his indignation on this situation show, as well as providing a good description of what two weeks under siege had done to the men. Fancy the bushmen humping the bluey in this ignominious fashion. We were a dirty, ragged-looking crowd, with battered helmets, tattered clothes, unshaven and unshorn and some of our boots were so bad we could only hobble painfully over a bumpy or stony veld. We had not even the satisfaction of doing much looting, as it was riling to see the mounted men of General Methuen's force come in with turkeys, geese, ducks, fowls, and suckling pigs dangling around their saddles. It appears the lavishing of praise didn't extend to sharing a feed with the heroes. Upon arrival at Mafeking, Thomas was less than impressed with the whole siege of Mafeking thing. The flat, treeless terrain offered no cover for the besieging Boer forces, and there was an ample supply of water within the town and the soil made for easy diggings, which prompted Thomas to state that the siege of England's River, though smaller and not so prolonged, was a more serious affair. After a period of rest and recuperation, Thomas and the Australian Bushmen joined other British forces in the fighting at Renostocot, to the east of Pretoria in November 1900. On the twelfth January, nineteen o one, Thomas was in command of a small force escorting a wagon convoy bringing supplies from Brockhurstsprivitz to Vlachfontein Farm, about halfway to Renstakop. Obviously, I pronounced that one hundred per cent correct. The convoy consisted of eight ox drawn wagons, four horse drawn wagons, a telegraph wagon, eight hundred and fifty two pounds in gold sovereigns, and one thousand head of sheep. To escort all this, Thomas had nineteen Australian bushmen and just under 200 British infantry, including 54 men of the 1st West Riding Regiment. The mountain men provided the main escort, and when the Boers attacked, they moved in close to the halted wagons to provide defence. The infantry moved forward in extended order to meet the attackers, but the ground was open and except for the long grass, there was no cover. The fighting escalated and soon became a major fight for survival. Thomas found unarmed infantry hiding under wagons, and on another wagon nearby were exposed wounded. He ordered the infantry to assist him to move the wounded onto a wagon which was loaded with sacks of grain. This would provide the wounded with at least some form of cover. The infantry troops didn't move. Thomas began pulling sacks of grain from the wagon and piling it up around the wounded and applied first aid as best he could. After about three hours of fighting, Thomas noticed that the firing had stopped and when he looked up he saw a white flag raised in the West Riding Regiment's sector. They had obviously had enough and took it upon themselves to surrender. With that regiment out of the way, the Boers were free to push on towards the wagons. Initially, only 70 enemy attacked, but that number soon swelled to around 300. They soon had possession of the 1,000 sheep and had disarmed the entire British infantry. Seeing that the fight was over, Thomas returned to the wounded men and collected all their valuables and hid them in the long grass, along with his own possessions. A Boar Field Cornet rode up to Thomas and advised him that he was a prisoner and that the commandant wanted to speak to him. Thomas refused, so the Boer commandant came to him and ordered him to come to the Boer Lager as he was a prisoner. Thomas replied, No, I will not go and leave my wounded men. I am attending them. I am going to stop here. I won't leave my men and you will have to take me by force. I'm guessing the commandant hadn't been spoken to like that in a very long time, and he must have been impressed as he allowed Thomas to remain while he took the West Riding Lieutenant and his servant to the lager. A court of inquiry was held, and it turned out that Lord Kitchener wasn't as impressed as the Boer Commandant. He stated in his report that Captain Thomas, who was in command of the convoy, was apparently not responsible for the hoisting of the white flag. His dispositions were most faulty, and his conduct in leaving the firing line to attend the wounded men under his wagons cannot be commended. End quote. I wonder if Kitchener remembered Thomas when he was appointed councillor for the Breaker in a year's time. The Great Lord's opinion of Thomas's defence of the convoy didn't seem to inhibit him too much. On the 29th of January 1901, Captain Thomas became Major Thomas and was the senior New South Wales officer in the Australian contingent. But the time in South Africa was up and the newly appointed Major's main task was to take his four squadrons of New South Wales Bushmen back home to Australia. Upon his arrival back in Tenderfield, the new mayor, Thomas Walker, proclaimed The townspeople's public pride and delight in the heroism with which you and your gallant comrades have maintained and promoted the honour and reputation of this state and district. But, as has always been the case, then and since, when soldiers are no longer at the front line, the luminaries of government tend to forget all the fancy words and platitudes they throw at the soldiers in more stirring times. Many of Thomas's comrades fell on hard times almost immediately after the army discharged them. Thomas soon focused his energies on helping these men. The war was still being waged in South Africa and Thomas sent a letter to the Defence Department stating Lord Kitchener says he wants more men. Large numbers of the men who returned with me have been utterly unable to find employment of any kind and many are absolutely stranded. Great inducements were offered them to settle in South Africa but our government opposed this. I have been asked by my men to try to get them back to South Africa, where they will try their fortunes on the goldfields, and whilst the war continues, they are willing to enlist again. Personally, I have no special inducements for another period of hard service, but I like the men, and I think they like me, and I am willing to go with them. End quote. It turned out that the Department agreed with him, and in late December 1901, he was back in South Africa, with the rank of Major and was waiting to be assigned to a unit when he received letters, urgently requesting him to defend three officers of the Bushveldt Carboneers. He later explained that, I did not like to refuse, so I got a permit to defend them, and proceeded to Petersburg, where I was engaged for about five weeks upon as difficult a task as I suppose ever fell to an advocate. And so began the trial, which would have a profound effect on the rest of Thomas's life, and on Australian military law. It was as a result of the Morant-Hancock and Witten trial that the death penalty was never included in our military law books. Now, I'm not going to go into the trial because in all honesty it's been covered by much better historians than me, and one worse one who shall remain nameless. Can I suggest, if you want a thorough and honest account of the trial, look no further than Shoot Straight You Bastards by Nick Blazinski. For those who don't know the circumstances of the trial, I'll just say that the men in question were arrested and held before a courts-martial for the alleged murder of prisoners of war and a German missionary. They never denied killing the prisoners, but maintained they were following orders issued by Lord Kitchener himself. They denied killing the missionary. It is widely believed, in some circles, that the three men were made scapegoats to appease international anger at the way the war had been conducted. Despite a rigorous defence by Thomas, Lieutenant Harry Brayker Morant, and Peter Hancock were executed, and Lieutenant George Witten was sentenced to life imprisonment. The result pretty much destroyed Thomas. He joined a group of sympathisers retrieving the bodies of Morant and Hancock and gave them a decent burial and in lobbying for the release of George Witten. He was successful in both cases, with Witten being released from jail in August of 1904, but he was never pardoned. Thomas helped Witten write Scapegoats of the Empire by providing Witten with his notes on the case and the trial. Upon returning to Australia, Thomas resigned his commission and never again used the title of Major. He lobbied the New South Wales government to provide assistance for Hancock's children and when Premier John Lee refused, Thomas ended up providing any assistance he could. He also pushed for an inquiry into the Morant-Hancock case, which obviously never got up. And just as an interesting aside, Lieutenant Hancock originated from Bathurst in New South Wales. And just last year, the RSL in Bathurst finally were able to hand over Hancock's medals to his family. It should never have taken that long. Thomas's war service and defence of the three Australians had an obvious impact on the remainder of his life. His behaviour could best be described as eccentric. Although owning a small property a few kilometres outside of Tenerfield, he quite often chose to sleep in a tent at the graveyard. He sold the Star newspaper in April of 1915 and his financial position continued to worsen and in 1919 he sold his law practice. Part of the sale contract was that he could not practice law in Tenderfield until the end of 1925. With the expiry of that term, he returned to town and began practicing again. From what I can deduce with my limited legal training, it appears that Thomas took on the affairs of a Mrs E. Power, who was a member of a prominent local family. She eventually sued him for mismanagement of her case, and she pushed him into bankruptcy he was ordered to pay the outstanding amount of over £77, and when he refused, he was jailed for contempt and became a guest at Long Bay Jail. While boarding at His Majesty's convenience, Thomas ran a kind of legal service for his fellow inmates, often helping them prepare their appeals. Obviously, the legal bigwigs weren't going to have a bar of that, and in 1928, the Supreme Court deemed he was no longer a fit and proper person to be allowed to continue as a solicitor. When he was released from Long Bay, He returned to Tenerfield and lived a largely reclusive life, partly by his own choice and partly because the town he'd been such an integral part of in the late 1800s no longer wanted anything much to do with him. He spent much of his time on his property 30 kilometres out of town, burnoo burnoo, occasionally performing accounting work and offering legal advice. On 10th November 1946, while at his office in Tenerfield, he began feeling a bit off. He asked to be taken home to Bunu, and on Armistice Day, aged 81, he breathed his last. The death certificate said nephritis and malnutrition, but they were just the physical causes. Knowing what we know these days about PTSD from his behaviour since returning from South Africa, it's obvious the stresses he faced as both a soldier and as the defence for the Carboneers left him a broken man.